Hi everyone, today is February 20th, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Paul Colombo. Hi, Paul. Hello. He's Associate Professor of Psychology um, and uh, Professor in the Programs in Neuroscience and Aging Studies at Tulane. That's two separate programs. His uh, research focuses on the molecular mechanisms of memory formation and on exploring independence and interactions among memory systems during normal and pathological aging. Um, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And we've got Brian Derrick. Howdy. Hi, Brian. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um, so just to start us off, uh, Paul, can you just recap for us briefly the idea of multiple dissociable memory systems and why until pretty recently the commonly held view was that they operated independently? Well, I think uh, the idea of multiple memory systems is an old one, and uh, it was really... Uh, the, the primary evidence in support of it was uh, found with patient HM uh, after removal, bilateral removal, medial temporal lobe. He was initially thought to be uh, have global amnesia, and it was quickly found that that was uh, restricted to certain types of memory. And other types of memory were preserved, and this led for a search uh, to see whether there are other brain systems or other neural systems that might support the kind of memory that was preserved. And and we uh, settled on a few subcortical regions, one being the amygdala, which is, seems to support emotional memory, the dorsal striatum, which seems to support habit memory or motor response memory, and the hippocampus uh, is, is the third. And then these, of course, interact with the with the cortical systems and... and uh, but, but the, the multiple memory systems are these, these three primarily. And initially, the evidence was to, or, or studies were conducted to dissociate them, and a number of dissociations were shown. And more recently, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, uh, researchers have started to report evidence for interactions among the systems. And the primary uh, evidence for that is if damage or uh, some impairment of one system facilitates performance supported by another system. Okay, so, so can you, so my next question was how these systems interact. So that's one way. So can you sort of take us through some of the other ideas of how these, how these interactions take place? And because you found um, that the type of interaction, and there, there's, there are a few, um, depends on whether the memory systems promote the same or different types of behaviors. Can you flesh that out a yeah, little bit? Yeah, well, let, let me say first that, uh, that the types of interactions that people have uh, reported are that the systems may cooperate, uh, they may compete under certain conditions, and they may operate in temporal sequence. And th these are the primary foci of, of the interactions among memory systems. Of course, under some conditions, it appears that they are independent of each other. So the mechanisms is, is really where we are currently. We don't know much about the mechanisms for interactions. Uh, in some cases, it, uh, it was thought that the hippocampus primarily competed with the other systems. So pro hippocampus competed with the striatum, hippocampus competed with the amygdala for control of behavioral output. Now, it's, more recently, it's been shown that there, these competitive interactions can be bidirectional. So not only hippocampus competing with striatum, and we know there are direct projections from hippocampus to striatum, but as far as we know, there aren't direct projections from stratum back to hippocampus. And yet there's evidence that manipulations, as I one of the things I showed today, manipulations of the stratum can cause evidence for both cooperative, <coughs> excuse me, 
<coughs> and, and competitive interactions with the hippocampus. So I always think, I mean, Nicole isn't here today, but, I, well, uh, but when you say that kind of stuff, I think a, a little bit about Nicole's work with language, because she's studying a situation where the person is, um, I don't know if she talked to you about this today, but uh, she studies these situations where the person might come up with the answer to a problem either in one language or the other, and then there's a correct language for giving the answer, and the ideas that they use are sort of both of these systems that for the two different languages are operating in parallel, each one of them saying, I know the answer, I know the answer, and then there is some uh, executive that looks at those and steps on one of them and lets the other one exactly. go. It, uh, it, ideas like that uh, work in memory? And well, I think that the ideas resonate very strongly, and I think it's, it, it, it is one way that we think about it. Uh, when you get to the point of saying executive, though, I might... I might. Uh, I don't think Nicole has ever used that. Word. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just made that word. Up. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you didn't just make that up, but uh, yeah, there, there, there's. It's likely that there are these systems, or one way to think about it is that these systems have evolved at different times to solve different problems, and uh, and there's evidence that that's true, and uh, so they may be specialized for certain kinds of memory or certain kinds of uh, solutions, and then. Um, with most of our problems, though, mem- that we bring memory to bear on solving problems, there will be some overlap. So they don't, they aren't specific to one memory system or another. So there has to be some control of behavioral output. So at some point, uh, one system might be more consistent with a correct, out, uh, correct solution, uh, and 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 be more effective at arriving at a solution than another system. And and certainly, there's going to be some level of control and and. Uh, the area that most people are starting to look at, I mentioned earlier, is uh, medial prefrontal cortex. Uh, Matt Shapiro, Sherry Mizumori have both proposed this as an area that might mediate the, the inhibition of one system in order for the other to predominate. So what are the kinds of things that define and sculpt within individuals which sets of strategies? Like what, are, what kinds of things would modulate that? Because it's, it's not explicitly top-down, right? These are things like maybe through critical periods or experience. I mean, what, can you just say something about that? Well, uh, there are a number of factors, if that's, if that's where you're going. Uh, one factor that a number of uh, investigators have started to look at is uh, stress. So stress tends to uh, shift the weight from one system to another. So uh, under conditions where the hippocampus or striatum might both equally contribute to an answer, under conditions of stress, it tends to shift towards the um, striatum. So a, a habitual or response-based strategy as opposed to a more cognitive strategy, if you will. So stress is an important factor. Lars Schwabe, um, Genevieve Boy, a number of people have. Uh, Barbara Knowlton has started to look at stress. Um, <clears throat> uh, others, developmentally, uh, some, there are changes in use of these systems across the lifespan. I don't think a lot is known about that. Uh, Veronique Bobat has started to investigate um, uh, that that by age seven, there's already a shifting in use of hippocampus or striatal dependent strategies. And so that, that shift can occur fairly early in which which system will predominate. So uh, among individuals, there are differences in, in which system they tend to use. And some of that can be formulated as early as age seven, according to her and human subjects. So how generalizable are those across tasks? 
So is it someone really uh, a hippocampal person across many, many tasks? Um, or, and a striatal person across many tasks? Or are there kind of tasks, classes of tasks that they may be... I mean, is that is that the right level of granularity in terms of preference and so forth? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I think that uh, still remains to be determined. So when, when I say hippocampal or striatal, uh, it's a tendency or propensity to use that strategy. Uh, a good question is how reliable is that? So how frequently do they always use it, you're, you're suggesting? Uh, does that change over time? It certainly changes under different conditions. So we know for a given individual, under stressful conditions, they will shift from being more stri- or more hippocampal to more striatal. So, so those kinds of shifts, there are factors that can influence uh, the use. Um, but uh, we don't know yet. I don't think we. I don't think that we really know how reliable that is. Um, so how the, the adaptation or yeah. uh, adopting is. So how much do you think that? Uh, uh, this may be jumping ahead a little bit, but how much do you think that the task design? Uh, how well defined? Because a lot of these tasks have a long history, right? So they're kind of historical. And if you start to to try to ask about whether things are cooperative or or competitive or the nature of the interaction between different systems, then the task that you'd want to design might be a multi-component task where you can regulate different components of the task together. And some of the and some, but some of the tasks are kind of. You know, we have a handful of three different tasks for you know hippocampus or something, and they they have this historical thing that are kind of designed to be very compartmentalized, and there may be a lot of artificial things with the task. So, are, are those changing, or are they kind of the same old war horses that are kind of? No, I think it, I think it is changing, and I think uh, if if uh, one talks to the some of the investigators who use those tasks specifically to dissociate the systems. So Norm White, for example, and, and students from his lab, Rob McDonald, Mark Packard, they all agree that those tasks were selected because they strongly favor one system or another. So they were, they were used specifically to dissociate these systems, and that was shown that they could do so. But they would all agree, and we've had conversations, so I'm confident about this, that uh, uh, most tasks that we engage in use a combination of these systems. And so now I think the fact that we're shifting to uh, studying the interactions among them is, is a consequence of starting to look at other tasks where there's more overlap and doing so intentionally. And so one task is the dual solution task that I mentioned that uh, you, an animal can solve the task either with a hippocampus or a stratum-dependent strategy, and then we can probe to see which strategy they use. That's been particularly useful for uh, investigating interactions. Early in your talk, you showed some data about the effect of cannabis and nicotine on which strategy was used. And if I remember the data correctly, there was a shift from a more cognitive to... Yeah, yeah not, not the effects of nicotine or cannabis, but rather those who used a response strategy when categorized for what strategy they used, those who used tended to be response learners, also had a greater propensity to be nicotine okay. users or cannabis so users. Resp- by response learners, you mean uh, people who are engaged more in a what you would it, the the dichotomy that you built was striatal versus hippocampal. So you so have habit striatal versus, habit versus cut. yeah. Well, they're not entirely habit though, because it can be shown in a in a in one bout. So uh, the the 
operational definition I'm giving comes from Veronique Bobat's work with the four-on-eight virtual maze, where the subjects navigate this virtual maze, and then uh, they're both asked to report what strategy they used, and they also do a manipulation that prevents use of a spatial strategy to verify that subjects were using either a spatial or a response strategy, and those are hippocampus and, and stridum base. So, okay. But what it showed is that is that those who used those drugs preferred a habit-based kind of learning system. Is that correct? Well, and the other way around. And the other but way actually, around. So there's, there's, we don't know. It's a, a cor- it's a correlation. It seemed to show that the spatial learners um, must have grown up under a rock because they never smoked and they never... <laughs> smoked weed and they never smoked tobacco. <laughs> well, yeah. and, uh, so I was thinking, wow, where did they find those subjects? <laughs> well, it's a smaller end, right? It's a small end, right? <laughs> <laughs> <This is, laughs> it is a college. Yeah. yeah. No, these these were uh, subjects from Montreal. So I believe Veronique said that uh, McGill, and I believe the subjects were from uh, Montreal. Uh, yeah, there was. It's a smaller number. That's one thing. So, of her sixty subjects, I think it was something like twelve who were spatial, and and uh, forty eight who were, or forty something who were uh, uh, response strategists. So there, there is a, a difference Slash there. Smokers. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, yeah, maybe the maybe, maybe the spatial learners, uh, uh, the strategies they use in life uh, also is related to other choices they make, like using getting out substances. in the nature. Well, getting out in nature Sorry. and going, being all healthy and yeah. going on hikes and having to not get lost. Yeah, but I would imagine that a spatial strategy is a losing strategy if you happen to be high. But, you know, that's, that's just... I'm not sure what strategy would work. I mean, <laughs> a habit is probably a little bit more reliable because you just keep on... It's, it's like to get out of a maze, all you have to do is put a hand on one of the walls and not let yeah. go of it. Just, and you'll end up getting out of it. So, uh, <laughs> so if you're ever high and get stuck in a maze, uh, now you know. Now I know. I'll yeah. try to keep that in mind. <laughs> so for your studies, you focus on um, manipulation of local Kreb expression. To program her interaction. Someone's trying to bring us back to science. <laughs> oh. well, we could go no, on no, and talk no, about no, no, pot and no, nature. No, no, no. <laughs> that would be very relatable for many of our audience, I'm sure. Um, but I, I just wanted to get at some of the the meat of your of your studies. And so, you, so you use uh, an assay of of. Well, actually, why don't you explain what you, why why Krebs expression? How you use it to manipulate uh, behavior right. and as a measure well, so, as a surrogate so, for what? Yes. So Krebs, uh, I've used. In this case, I use it more as a model system for investigating interactions. And there are a lot of different reasons that I use it. So a lot of the investigators who have studied interactions do so by uh, damaging or impairing a system, either with a lesion or a reversible inactivation. Um, by manipulating CREB, we can not alter in any way that we know of information processing by either system by both systems, we don't alter short-term memory, but we can prevent or facilitate formation of long-term memory. And so uh, it's a system where we're investigating, we think, the, the brain, the mammalian brain, when it's operating under more normal conditions, at least during information processing. Uh, and then the approach we use is really twofold. One is uh, to 
manipulate behavior as our independent variable and and uh, and have trained and control groups and then measure CREB phosphorylation as a marker of memory formation, and we can do so regionally. And the other is to manipulate CREB levels or activity with lentiviral vectors and then measure its effect on behavior, uh, so on memory. So it's, it's such a um, bottleneck for so many different types of pathways. Does that, is that a positive or a negative in, in doing these sorts of studies? I think in my case, it's, it, because I'm using it as a model system and not really trying to investigate the mechanisms, uh, I think it's, a, it's an advantage because so many pathways do feed into it. Um, if, if some change is occurring that's specific to one or another of these pathways, we're likely to catch it as opposed to miss it. So we're, we're likely to have a more robust manipulation by manipulations of CREB than I would if I was looking at individual pathways. So I think for the stage where we are currently, you know, to, to formulate and test hypotheses about how these systems might interact, I think it's good at an early stage to have a more robust manipulation rather than, you know, later on, once we have the rules of the game, I think that's when we can go in and start teasing apart the mechanisms more effectively. I can't help but wondering about what its job is, right? That, because, of course, it's controlling transcription. There's a ton of uh, expression that happens, I guess. Uh, uh, it's very strongly connected to ideas about synaptic plasticity. And addiction. So, so the idea is actually it's a sort of uh, volume control for for the synaptic plasticity would normally happen anyway. Is that... That's an assumption that I'm, I'm comfortable with right now, is that our manipulations of CREB are strengthening the networks in those regions of the brain that support uh, plastic changes and, and are the uh, you know, substrate for memory in those regions of the brain. So I would, I, I, I would suppose that if we, do our, if we inject, for example, or infuse uh, a wild-type CREB using a lentiviral vector, that we can strengthen memory and strengthen the network in the region of the brain, either in the striatum or in the hippocampus selectively, to test the effect of having a stronger uh, memory in one region as opposed to the other region. So that's, that's the idea, anyway. I think, I think that's what we're studying. And you get very regional kind of information, so you can compare different places in the hippocampus, different places in the striatum. And are you seeing what memories being kind of localized in these places? Uh, we, we don't yet have strong evidence for localization within the regions, uh, especially not within the hippocampus, to the extent that we've looked at just the principal cell field, so CA1, CA3, dentate. Uh, we do have more evidence in the striatum for the dorsolateral striatum having a more important role for certain kinds of motor response memory. But that may not hold up for other kinds of striatum-dependent tasks, such as cue learning, which is also it's striatum-dependent, but it's not so much the, the motor component as the rule-based component. How about longitudinally along the hippocampus? Does it matter? Uh, well, we're, we're just, we look at dorsal. So, so it doesn't matter. Quite possibly, do do I know how it matters? No, I, I don't have any idea. Yeah, we we've just manipulated in the dorsal hippocampus and, and measured CREP there also. I mean, we take it for granted, but it's pretty remarkable that you inject 
the stuff in a relatively small place in the brain and you see a, a large and reliable change in memory. Yeah. I mean, I, was, I, uh, I guess miracles happen in science now all the time <laughs> and we just get used to them. But I remember when just being able to do that would have been would have been incredible. It still blows my mind that it's, that, that happens. Right. Were you surprised when it looked so well? Yeah, at, frankly, I was. When we first started using viral vectors to manipulate CREB, we were using an HSV vector, and uh, we just started by piloting and just infusing in one site, and it spread with the volume that we injected. It, it just spread over the, uh, an area that was maybe uh, one and a half millimeters, and uh, which is a, a really small total proportion of the hippocampus. And we got a reliable effect with just a few animals. So I think we had an N of three, and we already had significant behavioral effects of those manipulations. And so we've, we've <coughs> extended more in the dorsal hippocampus, but we haven't really needed to. Uh, but we've done that just to show that we're, we're getting... Uh, so we're giving a couple, a couple of infusion sites now instead of just the one. But uh, yeah, I agree with you, and I was surprised. That, that such a targeted and localized manipulation had such a profound and robust effect. Has anybody tried any, anything like that in the in like the neocortex or any <laughs> any other kind of system like that? Um, if, if so, I, I don't know. Uh, um, I, I don't know specifically. Nobody's coming to mind. Um, but having said that, I'm sure somebody is, and somebody's jumping up and down right now saying, I have. But you have seen big, big differences uh, in terms of the age-related uh, effect of infusion, right? Mm -hmm. you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so uh, we, we've been able to demonstrate that um, using lentiviral vectors to overexpress CREB, we can enhance memory and... Uh, and we've measured the increase in CREB, and we've measured the increase in the phosphorylated CREB, and that's been in young animals. When we did the same manipulation in middle-aged animals, and this is still preliminary, we have not reported, we haven't published this yet. Um, uh, you when we did talk the, about it? the <laughs> same, <laughs> yeah. If you don't, that's fine. Uh, it, it, sure. Yeah. He's not, you cannot yeah. hesitate. But it's a proprietary thing. If you don't want to spill the beans, yeah. then don't. But if you don't mind, then. Uh, I don't mind. Okay. Oh, I don't mind. Uh, Sorry. Go ahead. No, I appreciate your uh, <laughs> your your caretaking role there. Um, so, what, when we when we infused uh, the uh, wild type crab into the hippocampus of middle aged animals, we did see an increase in total crab, but we didn't see an increase in phosphorylated crab, and we didn't see an enhancement of memory. So uh, that showed us that in the young animals. It seems that the levels of CREB are rate-limiting for memory formation, but by middle age, it's no longer the rate-limiting step, and it's probably, well, at least we're thinking currently it's something upstream of CREB, or it could be a phosphatase, which is yeah. rapidly dephosphorylating it. That's a possibility, too, but uh, we don't know. Well, a message from a, um, a message, a question from a larger perspective. It is uh, we've talked about habit systems and uh, a little bit about fear and emotional systems and cognitive systems. Are there other memory systems, and do they compete or interact? Well, uh, 
when you say, are there other memory systems, I, I think that's really a function of how you're defining memory system. So uh, I'm, I'm using the, the pretty well accepted designation of these three subcortical regions, which of course includes their interactions with cortical systems. So, so um, in that case, uh, if there are other memory systems, probably not major subcortical regions that are dedicated or important or necessary for processing specific kinds of information, but certainly within other, you know, more in a more distributed fashion, the cortex is contributing significantly to memory storage and consolidation and and it's these interactions between cortex and these subcortical regions that, of course, is important. So, uh, so I don't know if I call those separate systems or or just include them as part of a larger system that also includes these other I three see. subcortical regions. I think that would be very reasonable. Uh -huh. And in fact, I think if anything, our trend is shifting away from this identification of these independent systems and more towards their integration and how they operate as a whole. Um, in, in a more distributed fashion. Right. Well, one of the places we see that is with the amygdala and hippocampus and their interactions, because the amygdala and hippocampus can operate independently in behavioral tasks. Yeah, we know behavioral tasks where they cooperate. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, do we know of any behavioral tasks where they are competing? For instance, um, emotional memory versus cognitive memory. Yeah. Uh, uh, Krista McIntyre, uh, when she was with Paul Gold, had, had done some work with microdialysis, looking at. Um, now I'm I'm not able to access the specifics of that. We get to edit this out, so don't I worry know. about that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, she she did show um, some evidence for competitive interactions with the amygdala and hippocampus, but I'm I'm just kind of blanking on the details of that right now. So sorry. So what about the, the other options? So there's co there's competition, there's cooperativity, and then there's this idea of a temporal recruitment of different systems. Do we know about uh, paradigms that are able to maybe uh, elucidate any of those ideas? Yeah, so uh, it's it been reported more than once that, that the hippocampus may uh, code and store information first, and then in cases where the solution to a problem is invariant and can be um, s solved using a stratum-dependent or habit system, then that information is, or that control of that behavior is relegated to the stratum. So that the idea that they operate in temporal sequence is that, say, when you're learning the piano, you know, initially you have to think and be aware of where to put your fingers and to play a scale so and so forth. global scheme. It's not like recruiting within a task, one system versus another. Are we talking about... Well, so so learning something overall. If, you, if, you, if you're learning uh, something that can be you know, supported by the stratum, like a motor program, like playing a scale on a piano, uh, initially it takes the hippocampus to encode that information, but over time uh, you, can, you can do it without the hippocampal system. So this notion of of shifting over from hippocampus-dependent to stratum-dependent uh, memory has been popular, and it's been reported under a number of cases. But there are examples of the opposite being true, that in some cases the, the striatum supports the memory earlier, and then there's evidence of later hippocampus-dependent um, activity or, or, or memory formation. So there was a paper, the hippocampus is not always first, uh, I'm forgetting the office. <laughs> but sorry, but um, 
looking at that in specific, you know, is it always hippocampus then striving? And, and it, it appears that it's not. So, in the just bring this up as a tidbit in the in the songbird uh, field, one of the things that um, we do a lot with the, the striatal or uh, basal ganglia dependent uh, aspect of the learning tasks and learning birds, and then and you can actually. Uh, have birds just their song on the fly by giving uh, contingent negative reinforcement. Basically, you play a loud noise if they do something wrong in a very specific place in the song. So you can get them to change their song, like you can raise the pitch. Um, but if their pitch is too low, you go, eh, and then they try to avoid that, and they can raise their pitch in a very specific part of the song. And then you can, you can inactivate this the output of the this basal ganglia circuit, so the Actually, the target is probably more akin to some kind of frontal cortex mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. And then you can actually show that the the initial components of the learning are dependent on the basal ganglia circuit. But after you shift for a while, then it becomes uh, relatively independent of the of this kind of basal ganglia loop. Um, so in that case, that the it, it and then it just depends on the the it depends on this kind of straight cortical motor circuit mm-hmm. so in that case the striatal type of learning would be first and then the other kind of learning the automated kind of behavior would be more cortical it's a little bit harder to interpret uh, those kinds of things because the the dorsal forebrain is organized different um, but you can manipulate both of those and there's interesting things about whether it's the expression of the behavior or the induction mm-hmm. uh, of that is there a hippocampal component of the bird song uh, not that not that I know of it's not really hooked up with the traditional song circuit as, as much as we know now there's a lot of stuff and then I'm less familiar with that so this is all most of the traditional song system is more on the motor uh, production end of things uh, and the whole idea of identifying a tutor and memorizing and, and, and so forth is all in the kind of higher auditory areas. And there may be hippocampal dependent things about selecting a tutor and who's where and, and who's dominant over whatever um, that may be very well hippocampal dependent. And it also there's a whole separate thing of uh, people do study hippocampus and birds in terms of uh, 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 food caching, and, and you can do some very interesting manipulations about food caching and social kinds of things. About uh, well, I can't remember what species they use, but you know, birds will hide something, and then if the other bird, if they knew that the other bird was there to see them hide it, and the other bird goes away, they'll come back and redo it and restash it, and they won't do it if the other bird's not there. So, uh, you know, it's very interesting. That sounds very again. And that's yeah. very Lucy Jacobs did these tasks like this at Berkeley. Do you remember what bird species she used? Okay. So, but I don't know that some people haven't hooked up that hippocampal stuff with the the song system specific. But we don't do. We generally don't do because uh, it takes a while to to either it takes a while to learn a, a song or the birds that that can learn anything are too complicated to study. <laughs> uh, that about a lot of switching around and selection of, of, uh, of song. Um, I mean, may, there may be literature out there, but it's probably less studied. But that's a potential model system for looking at some of these interactions among memory systems. Yeah, yeah very much so. And I think it's interesting about, because I'm quite interested about what is it about when you say straddle or habit thing. That's, 
I mean, there's a gap. I think it's we have a better idea with what hippocampal dependent means, whether it's some kind of episodic. I mean, there's plenty of arguments about cognitive or episodic versus spatial and whether those difference and they should be thought about different. But I, at least me as an outsider, it seems like there's a much more real sense of, of uh, a handle on what that would be. And then a lot of stuff when you talk about straight learning, it's kind of like habit, procedural kind of stuff. Well, that I don't know. I don't really know what that means in, in a lot of op- conversation in an op- operational sense. I don't know. There's there's definitely tasks that are that way, but yeah. I don't get it, the sense that it captures the what this some of the up does. A, well, one one formulation of that is that the hippocampus performs stimulus stimulus associations and the striatum stimulus response associations, and so that. Uh, that seems to fit, at least uh, for, for my... Well, there's lots of work on the striatal involvement in the association between stimuli and rewards. Right. And the rewards are stimuli. So that becomes a kind of stimulus-stimulus association. That's one of the things that sort of blurs it for me, because Usually there's some kind of response in those tasks, but what seems to be getting connected is the the relationship between the condition stimulus that predicts the reward. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So things do get a little blurry, I guess. <laughs> hey, well, um, thank you for being with us. This has it's been my pleasure. Neuroscientist Talk Shop with Paul Colombo. Thanks. It was a good time to end this. Yeah.